Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. For those of you who don't know me, I'm an elder here at River Oaks Community Church. I want to welcome you here with us. So good to be with you and to be able to worship our triune God with you this morning. Happy New Year. Well, 2020 was not the year that we expected this, this time last year. For all of us, it's been a difficult year in one way or another. For many of us, it has been a painfully difficult year. And what was coming to my mind as I was just thinking about the year behind us, the year ahead of us, so I was thinking about that, you know, there's two little letters at the end of our year, A.D., right? It wasn't just 2020, it was 2020 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And 2021 is the year of our Lord. These are years that Jesus has given us. I'm looking forward to this year, to what Christ will do in building his kingdom here and around the world. Let's have hope and optimism as we look forward to this year and to what God will do in his church for his glory. Let's pray and then we'll read our our passage of scripture. Father, we thank you so much for giving us Christ. We thank you for his precious blood that has been shed for us. It brings us close to you. We thank you for your powerful Holy Spirit. We pray that he would open up your word to us now and teach us and plant this word within us. And we thank you for that word. We thank you that, Spirit, you have breathed out this word. We pray that you would empower us through it. You would teach us, correct us, reprove us, train us in righteousness that the people of God, that, that your church may be complete and equipped and ready for every good work. We ask that you would do this for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we trust that you'll do it because we ask it in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus. Amen. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Hear now the word of the one true and living God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Father, please bless your word to your people. In our home, we like to play different games, especially when we're driving around in the car. One of them is often, uh, you, know, you can only pick one. So our kids love to give each other and give us different options. And it's like, okay, you can only pick one. Which one are you going to pick? Now, sometimes it gets a little bit weird. So the other day I heard my daughter, Zoe, she was asking her brother, she said, Andrew, if you were a unicorn... Would you want to sneeze rainbows or would you want to sneeze glitter? Because as we all know, those are the two options for sneezing as a unicorn. Sometimes it doesn't get quite that weird. So I want to play a few rounds of You Have to Pick One with you guys. So let's put up the first slide on the screen. The age-old debate. Bacon or sausage? Bacon, okay. <laughs> uh, we had a strong bacon majority in first service, too. Raise your hand if you're with bacon. Okay. Now raise your hand if you would go with sausage. Okay, that's about the same. <laughs> bacon always wins out. Yeah, Chris says his worshiping hands. He's both. Let's go to our next slide. Coffee or tea? All right. Right. <laughs> We're going to cause some divisions here. <laughs> For a passage on unity, this is, might not be the best way to start. Okay. Raise your hands if you're with coffee. Okay, what, that's important. Let's say morning. Okay. Tea. Hot or cold. All right. Either. Either. Hot or cold. Both. But, yep, both. So, oh, and I didn't even think about this. If you're over the live stream, put it in the comments. We can see what you all like later on. We'll go back and check it. Next slide, last one. I'm making you guys hungry for lunch. All right. So after church, you're going, to, going out to lunch. You have, you have to pick between a burger and a taco. Who's with burger? Okay. Who's with taco? That was a pretty even split right there. Okay. So every time we play this game, the thought always comes to my mind of, why do we have to pick just one? And I know the thought came to some of your minds too. Why do we have to pick just one? I don't want to pick. I want both, right? I want to go eat a burger and a taco with some bacon and sausage on the side. Wash it down with coffee and tea. I want it all, all right? And see, we often, in a lot of areas of life, think about things with an either-or mindset, when we should really think about them with a both-and mindset. We tend to think that we have to just pick one option when really we can have both. In our, in our passage this morning, we're going to see that the early church, they had a both-and mindset, not an either-or mindset. They had a biblical balance in their life together. There are three seemingly contrasts in our passage that I want to look at, but they're not contrasts at all. They're really beautiful compliments. 
In this passage, we see that the early church pursued both a word and deed ministry. They pursued individual and communal living and a now and forever perspective. We're going to look at these one by one. So let's start with the early church pursuing a word and deed ministry. In our passage, we see the Jerusalem Christians giving generously and sacrificially to meet one another's needs. They're selling their possessions, taking care of the needy among them, and committing themselves to love and good works. Read verse 32 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What a beautiful picture of good deeds flowing out of the church. But notice, nestled in the middle of those verses, is verse 33, where Luke says, And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The early Christians were giving generously, and at the same time, they were preaching passionately. They were committed to a word and deed ministry. This should not be surprising to us. This whole situation started back in chapter 3. Peter compassionately healed a man who was lame, and then he stood up and preached a fiery sermon. It was word and deed ministry. This led to the apostles being threatened and coming together to pray in last week's passage. What did they pray for? They prayed, Lord, give us boldness to continue to preach and stretch out your hand to heal. They prayed for God to bless their word and deed ministry. This wasn't just Peter and these early Christians, Paul too. He summarized his ministry this way in Romans 15 verse 18. He said, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. This goes back To Jesus, who went about doing good, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, freeing those oppressed by the devil, and at the same time, he was teaching the scriptures, explaining the kingdom in parables, preaching the good news of the kingdom. We as a church, we try to live this out by God's grace. We have our three D's that describe why we exist as a church. We want to declare, disciple, and demonstrate. We want to make disciples by declaring the love of God in Christ Jesus and by demonstrating that love. We try, with God's help, to pursue a word and deed ministry. That's because God created us body and soul. So we want to serve our neighbors both physically and spiritually, both in word and in deed. Now, 
This is a very powerful combination in the life of a church. I got to see it firsthand uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, I believe it was Jonathan Dean was with me. We were in the jail right down the road back when we can do jail ministry before COVID. And we were preaching the gospel. There were a few guys in the room. Some of them were very engaged. There was one uh, young man who I could tell he didn't, he didn't really care. He was just kind of tuned out, wasn't really listening. And all of a sudden, he asks us, he says, wait, which church did you say we were from? And we told him the name. And he said, is, is that that little church beside the big church off Brown School Road? I said, yeah, that's, that's the one. And he said, you know, about six months ago, my wife and I were in a really bad situation. And we stopped by that church, this church, and you guys put us up in a hotel and you gave us uh, some gift cards to get some food for a few days. And from that moment on, he was completely focused on every word we were saying. That's why in this passage it says that great grace was upon them. Great power was upon them. Because when you have both word and deed working together, it is a powerful combination. John Piper has summed this up in a powerful statement. He said, we care about all suffering now, especially eternal suffering later. So we, as, as Christians, we should care about all suffering now, especially eternal suffering later. In our, in our deeds, in our actions, we want to help alleviate the physical suffering of those in our church and those in our community. And simultaneously, through our words, we want sinners to be saved from the sufferings of hell and help the saints to be strengthened in their eternal hope. And if you are here or if you're listening and you don't know Christ, I want to tell you that God cares about both of these things and we care about both of these things. Everyone has gone through difficulty and again, some people through excruciatingly painful trials in your life. God cares about that suffering. Christ, the God-man, God made flesh, he entered into that suffering. He experienced physical sufferings, but ultimately on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced eternal suffering as the wrath of God for the sins of his people fell down upon his beloved son. And so we, we want to walk alongside you and help bear your burdens and we want to tell you about Jesus, your only hope. Repent and believe the good news. That's our message. Repent and believe the good news. Now within the body of Christ, it's so beautiful to see these different focuses. Because you can look around and you can see some people who... who are gifted in ministering the word to one another. Other people are gifted in serving and in doing deeds of mercy and hospitality. And 
God has built his church as the body of Christ with different members where they can all beautifully work together for the church's ministry. And when you see someone who has different giftings than you, you should rejoice in that. And you should seek to emulate that. Because we want to have balance in our church and we want to have balance in our own Christian lives. So some of you do have a passion for the Word. You put an emphasis on the ministry of the Word. You love preaching and teaching and Bible studies and evangelism. You love talking about Jesus and studying His Scriptures. Praise God for that passion in your life. God's Word is central to our lives as Christians. It's central to our life together as a church, to our ministry, to a lost and dying world. But I want to ask you, for those of you who are passionate about the Word, is it possible that you have neglected the importance of good deeds? Is it possible that in your concern for the soul of your fellow Christians or for the soul of the lost around you, you have overlooked other needs in their lives? For instance, let's say a fellow believer suddenly loses their job. You might be able to encourage them with God's word and do that. That is so needed. But are you also willing to help them financially, to help them find a new job, to make sure that their physical needs are taken care of? See, we need balance. We need both of these working together. This week, I would encourage you to think and pray about how God could use you to meet the needs of those in this body and those around you in our community. God has prepared good works for you to walk in. These can be very practical and very simple, but find ways to serve your brothers and your neighbors. Now, while some of you have a passion for the Word, others might have more of a passion and a gifting and an emphasis on good deeds and on service, on actions. You're quick to volunteer to help whenever there's a need. You give, you cook, you clean, you serve, and praise God for you. Christ died to redeem a people who are zealous for good works, and you are a beautiful representation of that truth. But I want to ask you, in your service to those in need, have you opened God's word with them? Have you encouraged them with the scriptures? Have you Talk to them about Jesus. Let's use the same example from before of someone in the body losing their, their job. You would naturally respond with doing anything in your ability to help them in this difficult situation. But would you be quick to give them verses from Scripture to build them up? Would you be quick to open the book with them? And minister to their souls from the Word. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't really have either focus. What a good time at the beginning of the year to focus on both of these. Of getting in, of getting in the Word and getting in the lives of your fellow believers. We need both the Word and deed ministry. Second, we need individual and communal living as the early church pursued it. 
These are, are two aspects of the early church in this passage that, again, we, we often pit against one another. In some ways, you could see that, that Western cultures tend to focus more on the individual, and Eastern cultures focused more on the community. Even in our political spectrum, it can seem that the right focuses on individual responsibility, while the left can focus more on communal responsibility. Whether or not that's true is up for debate. But in Christianity, we don't have to choose between these responsibilities and these ways of living. We can have both. Notice, in this passage, the community and the unity and the oneness of God's people is heavily emphasized, and at the same time, the individual Christian is in no way diminished. Read verse 32 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The full number of believers, all the believers in this church were of one heart and one soul. They had everything in common. What a glorious picture of the oneness of the church. And this unity, it, it took on flesh. It, it got its hands dirty. They were a family and they took care of each other like a family. Now in this same passage about, about the Christian community, we also see that an individual Christian is singled out for his faithfulness. In verses 36 and 37, Luke introduces us to a man named Joseph, who we know as Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He sold his property. He gave his money to the apostles to take care of the church. He was such an encouragement to the church that he received an apostolic nickname, Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. So again, we see this beautiful biblical balance in these early Christians. Barnabas took personal responsibility for following Christ and obeying his commands, which led him to love and serve his brothers. See, the Christian faith, it is built upon the individual soul. It is before God that each one of us stands or falls. We are accountable directly to God for our lives. Christianity is deeply personal. And this was revolutionary in the first century. The ancient world saw the individual person as, as insignificant compared to the family or the tribe or the nation. But God made mankind in His image. We each bear that image. When Christ came, He ministered to individuals. He called individuals to follow Him, and He died for individual sinners. Yet, at the same time, the Christian faith is built upon the church. Christianity is deeply personal, but it knows nothing of the hyper-individualistic culture of our day. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. These Christians in this text, they would have been confused 
by a believer who is not actively participating in a local faith community. Yes, Christ died for you. And Christ died for me. But Christ died for his church. We just celebrated this at Christmas. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So I want to look at how this this both and living is directly applied to the issues of of poverty and physical needs, because that's exactly where Luke goes in this text. The church was taking care of one another. We see Barnabas making sacrifices for the sake of his brethren. This individual and communal living rolled up its sleeves and went to work. Now many people have taken this very passage of Scripture and this very truth that I'm preaching and taught that what we see here was an early version of socialism or communism that was practiced by Jesus and his earliest followers. This is actually the proof text that is used to promote socialist economic policies from the Bible. Just do a Google search. Acts 4 Socialism. There's hundreds of articles about this. Now we need to know how to think about this as Christians. Because the world around us is quickly embracing these ideas. 70% of my generation, the millennial generation, says that they would vote for socialist politicians and support socialist policies. Now, I'm not an economist. I am a preacher. But we need to think about all of life under the authority of God's Word, including politics and economics. Some people claim that in Acts 4, we see the abolition of private property and the establishment of collective ownership, all tenets of contemporary socialistic thought. I mean, just look at the text. It kind of sounds like it, right? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They're saying that, that their possessions don't belong to them. They have everything in common. It's being distributed to those who have need. But is that what this text is teaching? I'm going to argue that, that no, it is most certainly not. The first point is this sacrificial giving of the early church It was voluntary, not coerced. We are not to give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. No one was forcing them to do this. No one was twisting the arm of Barnabas to make him sell his field. This is spirit-wrought love, not a blueprint for economic policies. This is love. Secondly, private property was not abolished. Verse 32 says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Notice their, their possessions still belonged to them, but they didn't consider it so out of love for their brothers. In the next chapter, when Ananias and Sapphira sell their property, keep back some of the proceeds for themselves and lie about it, Peter says this in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? He's saying it was yours, even when you sold it, the money you received from the sale. 
was yours to do with as you wish. Again, this was cheerful, joyful generosity. This was not collective ownership. And third, the the state wasn't involved whatsoever. These Christians were not laying their money down at the feet of Caesar, but at the feet of the apostles. This was done within the community of believers, not forced upon a population by their civil authorities. A few months ago at the uh, biblical race and justice training, I was talking with uh, Nate Cordell. And he said, you know, there's a lot of talk about the need for a social safety net. And he said, that should be the church. <laughs> the church should be the social safety net. This should be our social fabric where we take care of one another's needs. That's the church, not the state. Socialism, communism, Marxism, whatever word we want to use to describe these ideologies, they are not taught in Scripture. Rather, they are antithetical to Scripture, and we must stand against them as Christians. However, it would be easy for us to say, we believe the Bible, we reject socialism, that's it. But that's not it. I would miss the entire point of this passage. Luke is not writing this passage just to show us what not to believe and what not to do. He wrote this as an example for how we are to live our life together in Christ's church. So if we reject modern man's solution to poverty, and we should, what is God's plan? First, we have to understand that this passage is recording a specific church in a specific time, in a specific situation. This is an example, and there are principles that we should learn from the example, but it might not be necessary in all situations for us to copy exactly as they did everything in detail. Let me tell you why. First, the church at this time was was starting to experience very severe persecution their possessions were likely to be plundered. Of course they're going to sell them and help out this fledgling church that's under attack. There was extreme need in this church. Remember back to chapter 2 and the Feast of Pentecost. Jerusalem would swell during those times with pilgrims who would come to these feasts for a few days to go back home. That's what they were expecting to do. Come for a few days Go home. And then Jesus saved many of them, thousands of them. And they ended up staying in Jerusalem to participate in the life of the church. (laughs) This undoubtedly led to more needy Christians in their midst than normal, including many widows, as we will see in chapter 6. Finally, Jesus had promised that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed before that generation passed away. See Matthew 24. Listen to our sermons on Matthew 24 from a few years ago. Therefore, the early followers of Jesus naturally sold their property in the city. It was doomed for destruction. It was temporal. So they used it for eternal purposes. That being the case, there are principles in this text and in the rest of Scripture that we need to study and apply to our lives. Verse 34 should be true of every church. It should be true of this church. It should be our goal. 
Luke said, there was not a needy person among them. We want that to be true of our church. There's not a needy person among us. So, how do we address issues of poverty and need? Well, first, again, we believe in individual and personal responsibility as well. So we need to encourage each other to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands so that we may properly walk before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Again, we want to have a, a full-orbed picture of this from all the scriptures. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. But there are situations that arise, unexpected difficulties, and we need help. Those situations will always come about. So what do we do? Well, 1 Timothy 5 is very helpful. In 1 Timothy, Paul is helping Timothy know how to really establish a church. How a church lives together. And in chapter 5, he shows how do we take care of those in our midst who can't take care of themselves or have physical needs that need taken care of, specifically widows. In verse 16, Paul says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In verse 4 and in verse 8, Paul says that before the church helps in cases of need, they should go to their family. Because if one does not provide for their family, they are worse off than an unbeliever. So we should give the family the opportunity to show godliness to their own households. If there's no family that's willing and able to help, then the church steps in and takes care of her own. Responsibility moves from the physical family to the faith family. As Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is when Acts 4 kicks in. Since we have been shown lavish generosity and warm hospitality by Christ himself, we should eagerly desire to be generous and hospitable with one another. We should be willing to cheerfully part with our possessions for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for those in need who are far from Christ. So ask yourself, are you willing to sacrifice for the good of your fellow Christian? Are you willing to help your neighbor in need? Can you give up your stuff and your time and your convenience for the sake of another? And don't just think of financial needs, all kinds of needs. There are so many ways you can serve the body of Christ. You can pick up groceries for someone. You can pick up their prescription. You can shovel snow off their driveway. You can mow their, their lawn when it gets warmer. You can babysit their kids. You can bring someone a meal. You, you can invite people over to dinner. Find a way to serve those around you. 
On the other hand, if you're here and you find yourself in financial need, what should you do? There are two places that we often run to when we find ourselves in financial trouble. That's Uncle Sam or Visa and MasterCard. We don't want to admit that we're having difficulty. So we apply for government benefits or we go into debt with credit cards. This is not the Bible's way. We just read in Proverbs that the debtor is a slave to the lender. If you find yourself in this situation, humble yourself. Trust in God and see what you can do in your situation. Again, take, do everything you can in your power with God's help to come out of that situation. Then see if members of your family are willing and able to help you. And finally, come to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are eager to help you. This is God's plan for eradicating poverty among His people. Now, I've been so encouraged this past year to see the generosity of this church. I mean, giving has gone up in such a difficult year. Well, not this year, last year, right? We've been able to help many people in need this year. As soon as the pandemic hit, People were making sure that those in the church were taking care of. Philip up here, he was getting a group together to make sure people's needs were taken care of. Countless meals have been provided for people who need them. I honestly feel like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You have no need for me to preach to you. But we urge you to do this more and more. I'm just urging you to do what you're already doing more and more. Find more ways to love, more ways to serve. So the early church pursued a word and deed ministry. They pursued individual and communal living. And finally, they pursued a now and forever perspective. Read verse 33 with me again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus was raised, we will be raised. See 1 Corinthians 15. They were setting their eyes on their eternal hope, on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and their future resurrection from the dead. At the same time they were focusing on the resurrection, they were doing good. In their city, right then and there. They didn't pit heaven against earth, time against eternity, now against forever. They knew that what they do now counts forever. C.S. Lewis said this powerfully. You probably heard this before, but it's worth repeating. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. The early church aimed at heaven. And in doing so, in a small way, they brought the life of heaven down to earth. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, is it not? That's what we sung earlier. His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the resurrection, in the new creation, there will be no lack. There will be no need, no scarcity. We will live in a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of blessing, a kingdom of fullness, a kingdom of life. And if we set our minds on those things, things that are above, not on things of earth, we will find that we want to start living the life of that eternal kingdom in the here and now. I want to ask you, how often do you think about heaven? How often do you think about eternity, about the coming kingdom, about seeing your king face to face? about worshiping around His throne with all the saints forever. You know, Jonathan Edwards, he described heaven as a world of love. If you have your mind occupied on that world of love that's awaiting us, how could it not lead us to live a life of love here and now? Our lives now, we are practicing for how we will live with each other for all eternity. We're rehearsing how we will love one another in the new heavens and the new earth. So I would encourage you to take some time, meditate on the beautiful description of the city of God in Revelation 21 and 22. And then look around you and see where you can start building that city today, living like it's true today. Becoming heavenly minded is the only way to be of any earthly good. The early church pursued word and deed ministry. They pursued individual and communal living, and they pursued a now and forever perspective. By God's grace, may we do the same. For the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to walk in it. We thank you, Christ, for saving a people for yourself. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that helps us and gives us the power to fear you and walk in your ways. Help us to turn the eyes of our hearts upon you as we come to the Lord's Supper. Meet with us now. Eat with us. Help our souls to feast on you and your goodness and your grace. Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our King. Amen.